Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, Jonathan Jolly amassed a following of millions on social media, starting with a YouTube channel documenting everyday life for him and his family, the Sacconi Jolies. From the outside, life looks perfect. Travelling the world, big house, beautiful family. But a panic attack a few years ago brought with it a flashback of the imaginary world Jonathan had created to help him cope with issues as a child. Today we talk about gender, coping strategies and the importance of being yourself, all as documented in his memoir, All My Friends Are Invisible. And as Health Minister Stephen Donnelly confirmed that anti-sickness medication for those suffering with hyperemesis during pregnancy will not be included on the drugs payment scheme and reimbursed by the state, I'll be joined by Dr Aoife E. Hay, a GP at Trinity Clinic in Dublin and representative of Hyperemesis Ireland, and Dr Caitlin Dean, author of Hyperemesis Gravadium, A Definitive Guide to Find Out Where We Go From Here. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, you might be able to hear from my voice. It's finally caught up with me. I come to you from my home studio where I'm isolating with COVID. My son had it last week and when he had it in November, none of the rest of us got it. And I foolishly hoped for the same. But Omicron is far more friendly, isn't it? And I got the dreaded double line earlier in the week. To be honest, it almost felt good to be validated as I did have cold-like symptoms and really wasn't feeling myself. So the negative antigens were confusing me. But anyway, we are in it now. My daughter has it too. She is not sick, but it feels like my kids will never go back to school again. Any consistent routine we had has been replaced with lounging Roblox and Netflix, which is as odious as the virus itself. And as we're living with my mom, I'm doing my best to keep her from getting it. So the kids are kind of sticking to one of the sitting rooms and I'm isolating in my bedroom, hubby in the spare room, meals on a tray, too much scrolling from me also, but also some reading, some chats on the phone to friends and catching up on some work. I did have loads of lovely plans too that I had to cancel. But look, we all know the drill now. You just go with it. And I'm not going to lie, I was getting quietly smug about going two years without it. Part of me was feeling that all my health and wellness endeavours had fortified my immune system. But no, I too have fallen foul and now I can just chalk it up to experience. I haven't felt great, mainly a bad head cold symptoms, but I've definitely turned a corner and I'm on the home straight now. So wherever you're at this week, I hope you're all doing okay. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly confirmed that anti-sickness medication for those suffering with hyperemesis during pregnancy will not be included on the drugs payment scheme and reimbursed by the state. Joining me now is Dr. Aoife Hay, a GP at Trinity Clinic in Dublin and representative of Hyperemesis Ireland, and Dr. Caitlin Dean, author of Hyperemesis Gravidium, a definitive guide to find out where we go from here. Hello, ladies. You're very welcome. Aoife, I'll start with you. What's the latest on the issue? This week, we, we've had an announcement. What, what was that announcement? 
So the announcement was that they said a special patient arrangement. So it, it's nice and vague. The truth is we don't know. But as you know, hyperemesis is a condition of pregnancy and it causes severe vomiting um, in women who are pregnant. It's about one to two percent of pregnancies. Not surprisingly, these women need medication. And the Irish Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in their guidelines, their national guidelines of how to treat hyperemesis has recommended that Caravan be used first line. So if you go into hospital for treatment, chances are the doctors are going to put you on caravan. And the issue is that caravan is not licensed in Ireland. And that means it's not reimbursed in Ireland. So if you have a medical card or you're using the drug payment scheme, you have to pay for it out of pocket. So caravan in Ireland is about 45 euro a week. Multiply that by 40, 40 weeks of standard pregnancy. That's a lot of money. Now, some pharmacists will offer it at cost, but that's that's them obviously being generous and not every pharmacy can afford to do that and there is a precedent that other drugs that are unlicensed are given a GMS code so the pharmacists get reimbursed so certain kinds of HRT medications colchicine which is used to treat gout and certain thyroid medications so it has been done before and I suppose our question in hyperemesis Ireland is why isn't why hasn't it been done number one and number two as you rightly say Minister Donnelly knew about this and has known about this for years so you know he can't say he didn't know about it so the pandemic yes is an excuse but it's going on for nearly two years and we have women who are into their second hyperemesis pregnancy at this stage so it needs to be sorted out and, and any change from the HSE would be very welcome. Yeah, I did the maths on the 45 euro a week over 40 weeks and it's 1800 euro. And I know myself from starting a family, if you saw a buggy for 1800 euro, there's many of us that say, oh, I don't know. I don't know about that. And this is something that we really need. It's an expensive time, isn't it? You're already investing um, in so much. So I, I don't know where people are coming up with this money. And what if you're from a low income family? Exactly. And it, look, there's no easy way to have a baby. And even not every woman gets paid maternity leave. And then with the pandemic as well, people mightn't have been working if they're in the hospitality industry. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel that, you know, uh, cost should not be a barrier to care. It should not be how expensive the medication determines whether you, you get the medication or not. One of the defences, because since the announcement was made that Stephen Donnelly wouldn't be putting this um, on the, the free drug scheme. One of the reasons is being given is that it's a food supplement. Do you know anything about that, Aoife? I know I was really scratching my head on that one. So Caravan is a trade name and it's it, the generic name is pyridoxine doxylamine and it's an antihistamine and vitamin B. The only thing I can come up with is the word vitamin. But beyond that, it's it's beyond me. I mean, an antihistamine is clearly a medication. As I said, the Irish Institute of Obstetricians and Gynecologists are clearly recommending it. So, no, I'd be interested to see how he came up with that. OK, because it might be that I'm being devil's advocate here far be it for me to side with him but is this just a a red tape type issue and something that could be sorted out 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, when a pharmacist buys and supplies uh, carabin, they have to confirm that it's for supply on a valid medical prescription and to keep all appropriate records for a period of five years. There's no requirements for that for a food supplement, which obviously can be sent over the counter. So, yeah, I I don't I, I obviously don't know why he's doing that. But to give you an example of what else is reimbursable on the GMS, on the medical card or on the drug payment scheme, and this is not to minimize these conditions at all, but Viagra is available. Uh, minoxidil, which is a, a treatment for male pattern baldness, are available. I think that's great that they're available, but again, I would question why Caraban isn't available, especially as the hospitals are saying that it should be used as a first-line treatment. And women with it, we're going to speak to Caitlin in a moment about her personal experience, and I know you've some of it yourself, Aoife, through your pregnancies, but you get that sick that it's it's so debilitating. It's so much more than morning sickness or nausea. It's completely debilitating. So there's no going to work. And quite often you will need to go to hospital to be put on a drip for fluids for your own safety and the safety of the baby. So surely there's an expense involved in that if we really want to come down to to money and, and making this make sense. Is, is that true? If we were to make the drug available, would less people have to go to hospital and, that, and, and drain that system? Absolutely. So if you're vomiting, you know, 20 times a day and you can't keep liquids down, you're going to become dehydrated. You're going to need fluids, uh, which the only place to get that is in hospital. And even from a cold, hard cash point of view, everybody who has to come in to get fluids and be hydrated again, that's going to cost the, the, the government an awful lot more than 45 euro a week. So it doesn't even really make sense from a, a, a economic point of view um, and yes not only that you know that you might need to function and, and go to work but if it's your second or third hyperemesis pregnancy you'll have young children who are actually depending on you to function yeah it's 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 tough well let's bring in caitlin dean caitlin's book is hyperemesis gravidarum the definitive guide and she joins me on the line now caitlin you have the definitive guide on this you had it through three pregnancies tell us a little bit about your experience yeah well my my experience is 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 pretty standard of 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 women with this condition although certainly not uh, by any means as bad as it can get um I started with my first pregnancy. Um, Having had a previous miscarriage, uh, I woke up on uh, first day of week six and um, was sick. And my husband and I were laughing, going, oh, fantastic morning sickness. This is a great sign that the pregnancy's um, a keeper. And and within a couple of days, I hadn't stopped being sick. Um, It just did not stop. Um, And the nausea absolutely overtook every cell of my body um so I was off work um with a job I'd only recently got and was very excited about and you know mad keen to be in work um so I was having to phone in sick um and it just went on and on and on uh for the entire pregnancy I think I I briefly got back to work um towards the end of the second trimester but then it flared back up again in the third trimester um and it was absolutely relentless. Um, the it, it brings with it loneliness and isolation um, and sort of depression and everything that comes along with that. Because if you can imagine being sick for just even just two or three days is is horrible. But when it's weeks and weeks and weeks and everyone around you is telling you that you should be grateful, uh, that it's a good sign, um, that you just need to think positively, that it's normal 
all of these kind of things. I mean, the point is that it's not normal. Normal is a bit of sickness, a bit of nausea and occasional vomiting in the first trimester. And women generally don't complain about that because it's an expected, potentially wanted part of pregnancy. You know, for me, it was like a rite of passage, which when trying to get pregnant was, I I was willing to embrace the entire experience of pregnancy. Um, But high premises is not a normal part of pregnancy. It's absolutely horrific. Um, And I think, you know, this issue with the medications and and why this is even an issue is because there's a real underappreciation for quite how serious this illness is. Um, And when you start to appreciate the severity of the illness, not just for the woman suffering, but actually malnutrition for babies in the first trimester, there's good medical evidence that that can have lifelong impacts for that baby. Um, and And it carries its own risks with it. So, you know, we're not just talking about women moaning about being a bit sick here and wanting a, a pill to fix it. Um, we're talking about a very serious, potentially life-threatening condition. Caitlin, what's the situation in the UK? You live in Cornwall. Is Are the drugs available on the NHS? Uh, yes, yeah. So um, in the UK, once you're pregnant, all your prescriptions are, are, are free. Um we have um we have a, a drug that's um the same as caravan but it's um licensed here under a different name called um zonvia and um we have got some trouble getting that because um various nhs ccgs and things haven't haven't put it on their formularies and and some doctors haven't heard of it and so on because it was only well i mean it was licensed a few years ago now um but ultimately you can get it um and on the nhs and we have a whole load of other medications that are off license but very much used um and they have to be i mean from a risk benefit point of view it's it, it you know there's there's good evidence that these drugs are not causing harm to the fetus but actually they prevent a, a significant amount of harm coming to to both mum and baby um and so yes i mean we do there are still problems for women in in the uk getting access to medication where the stigma around the condition still creates barriers. Um, so, you know, women are often told that, you know, medication isn't safe in pregnancy and that there's really nothing they can do and and so on. But I'll, but if you, you can get the medication, <laughs> ultimately you can. Yeah, it's so frustrating, isn't it? Because, I mean, I can even hear it in your voice and, and also to Eva's when she compared some of the medication that's available, such as Viagra and medication for for baldness, it's almost as if pregnant women are just being pushed aside and told to get on with it. And I think the difference here is you actually can't get on with it and you'd love to just enjoy your pregnancy as much as possible, continue working, mind the rest of your family, continue having a social life and, and then move on, you know, to be able to absolutely feel good no, no every day, wants- you know. Yeah. No one wants to be ill for nine months. No one, you know, when I'm not pregnant, I am a a, a very busy um, working professional woman who, you know, manages a, a busy household and all the rest of it. And I don't, I don't have time to be off sick. And, you know, even making GP appointments is actually really inconvenient and difficult to fit into a busy life. Um, Yet when when a woman's pregnant, she seems to be sort of there's this sort of assumption that you're just being a bit dramatic and um, a bit sort of wimpy about some basic pregnancy symptoms. And and that's really not the case. I mean, (laughs) we're tough women and we get on with it. And, um, 
yeah, there's just this this strange stigma around it. And like you say, I mean, things like um, Viagra and impotence is hugely well researched. The funding that goes into the to the research of that is major, and yet we have this condition that can have lifelong impacts for 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 babies um, that we know so little about and is so disregarded. Eva, can I bring you back in then? I know you're working with Hyperemesis Ireland, a charity that have been set up in, in support of women in this situation, and they're very much campaigning and, and lobbying for Caravan to be made available. Where, where do we go from here? What What is the, 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 the latest and, and how long do you think this campaign will go on for? Yeah, so we're coming up to the one year anniversary, actually, of, of this campaign. And I should say as well, exactly what, what Caitlin said, you know, we don't work for Caravan. We've nothing to do with Caravan. There are other trade names of the same drug, like Zonvi and things, but unfortunately, they're not available in Ireland. They are licensed, but the drug companies, for whatever reason, have chosen not to market them or make them available in Ireland. So for, for the Irish people, population it's caravan or nothing at the moment there are other medications to treat hyperemesis but as i said the caravan is first line so the guidelines number one we would recommend that the national guidelines are updated that there are other available medications and that often a patient with hyperemesis will actually need two or three medications to actually get the symptoms under control but if you're a gp somewhere and as i said it's a rare enough condition one to two percent of pregnancies and you've never seen somebody with hyperemesis before you're going to do what the guidelines tell you to do which is completely understandable and so we would recommend that the guidelines would be updated and then number two yeah if they want to join our campaign on hyperemesis ireland or we've hashtag hg2 too costly as well that you can find us on twitter as well yeah and there's hyperemesis.ie for the website well thank you very much to both of you for joining me for more you can visit hyperemesis.ie dr Eva nihay works out of the trinity clinic in dublin and dr caitlin dean's book hyperemesis gravidium a definitive guide is available now on amazon And since speaking with the ladies, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly has asked the Women's Health Task Force to look at options for funding this pregnancy sickness drug to make it more available to women. So here's hoping that they keep looking and find this solution. Coming up after the break, Jonathan Jolly on not fitting in and his memoir, All My Friends Are Invisible. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Jonathan Jolly amassed a following of millions on social media, starting with a YouTube channel documenting everyday life for him and his family, the Sacconi Jolies. From the outside, life looks perfect. Travelling the world, big house, beautiful family. But a panic attack a few years ago brought with it a flashback of the imaginary world Jonathan had created to help him cope with issues as a child. All documented in his memoir, All My Friends Are Invisible. And Jonathan is on the line now. Jonathan, how are you? Hey, I'm, uh, well, I, I don't like to say I'm okay, but I will be okay. You're having a, 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 a down day or you're trying to just be honest. We're not all sprightly yeah, and great I, all the time. Exactly. I don't think we're having like a down day or an up day because every day is up and down and up and down and up and down. You know, you might feel great one minute and then the next minute you're like, oh, why do I feel like this now? You know, and then we're, aren't we conditioned to just keep it in? Don't share it, you know. And a funny thing happens though, when you share 
your uh, mental health experience, you realize that you're part of a very large club. And I, I often think it, especially if I'm having chats with friends who are parents and they're saying, you know, my kid is just raging all the time. Or I had one recently really worried about her child because she's been saying she's feeling down and she's feeling depressed. And obviously that can be a red flag and it could be something to monitor and watch. But one piece of advice I, I also gave her was we are supposed to feel all the feelings. You know, it's not mm. all good That's all the time. Yeah. And to be able to vocalize that and and say that is actually a really positive thing. And I think, you know, what you said there at the start is, you know, exactly kind of part of the reason why I wanted to share my story, because I know a number of people in my life and family and close friends that are suffering. And we don't know how to um, connect with them or we, we want to fix them. You know, especially I'm a parent of four children. And, you know, initially when your child is sad, you, you want to just fix it. And then we, by, by doing what you know as somebody who has lived like four decades, like I have, you know, you're like, I have the answers and I want to fix it. And then, you know, that just triggers them further and it just makes them more upset, you know? And then you're thinking like, oh gosh, like I don't know how to relate on that level or how to get through it to them. And I hope that like me telling my story, it doesn't, you know, it's not a how-to guide. You know, All My Friends Are Invisible is not going to be a book you're going to pick up and it's like, step one, this is how to fix yourself. You know, it's just a point of view of somebody who's not afraid to tell you how they feel. You know, it's not like, it's not, I, I'm just giving you the running dialogue that I had throughout my childhood because I didn't know how to make friends. I didn't know how to be around people. And I had a lot of mental health problems and a lot of identity problems. And it was 1980. And nobody wanted to know about mental health. So I, um, my imagination, I assume it was my imagination, um, created relationships for me to, to talk about things with and for me to express myself and create a connection and feel, feel like I belong to something, feel like loved, because I just never felt loved. I felt like I was the problem. Everything was my fault. And the book is written purely through your eyes as a child, your perspective. Um, and I suppose then your parents will have their perspective, your siblings will mm. have their perspective. But, you know, even in your acknowledgements, it's not there with judgment. It's just there to say, this is my experience and there are lessons mm. to be learned from me, but possibly from others too. And I include society in that. Yeah, I think had I written this book in my 20s, it would be very angry. But I went off and I grew up and, and you know, I, I now have the exact same amount of children that my parents had. And, you know, I think children are a thing that really matures us and makes us very more aware of our actions and our selfishness and our mind. And, you know, because we're observing these little people that we've created from us and they they take all of our best parts of us and the worst parts of us and then they're like these little mirrors walking around your house and they're showing you everything that you are and then and it just makes you realize a lot of things about yourself and my children you know taught me a lot about me and during the pandemic you know I watched uh, I watched my son you know struggle with the fact that you know he was coming home and he was being a girl in the house. And then every morning he gets up and he dresses like a boy and he goes to school and he pretends he's a boy. 
And when we hit lockdown, he was like, so I don't go to school anymore. And I was like, no. And he's like, so does that mean I get to be a girl all the time? And I was like, oh, my God. And my heart just broke for him, you know, and I was like, that's not right. You know, that's not that's not the way we're supposed to think that. No, I was like, I'm going to I'm going to disrupt this for you because I see what you're saying. And that's how I felt. And he reminded me that that's how I felt. And it really hurt me as a child. But unfortunately for me, my parents didn't have my life experience. So when I, you know, when Eduardo has, you know, came across his issue, I was I, I had lived the perfect life to be able to try and intervene, you know, and then classic parenting situation at the very moment I see Eduardo smile I turned around and my daughter is you know going through a really hard depression and she's spiraled with anxiety and you know she's terrified we're all going to die and this pandemic's never going to end and she's never going to go to school again and she misses her friends and she really took it really hard and I was like okay I guess I gotta save this child now you know and then I started to think about how I dealt with my mental health as a child and you know, and that's what we all had to do. We all had to, you know, all the parents that were, you know, our schools were closed down, our councils were closed down, but we were just on our own and it was up to us to save our children, you know, and, I, and that's what I hope the book does. Well, firstly, can I say that mirror you speak of was something that I didn't expect from parenting at all. I thought you loved them, you played with them, you fed them. And that was being a parent. I had no idea they were going to mm. force me to look at all the parts of my personality, the good, the bad mm. and the ugly. And I think that is not talked about enough. Um, so that's that's point one. Um, but can we talk about gender then? Because that's a, a, a big theme in the book, as it were. And because it's coming through an eyes of a child, you as a child, it's very simplified. And I don't know why it can't remain that simple. Why is it not OK for a boy mm. to want to wear pink? Why is it not OK for a boy to want to wear a skirt? I, I, I think it's about time because we've begun to talk so much now about gender that we start to break down these boundaries because mm. it doesn't have to be that big a deal, does it? I think what we did was that we we all kind of accepted and we said, okay, so if you don't want to be this, you can either be this or this, and that's it. And then, you know, there's something about, you know, there is no there is no box for me. You know, I don't fit into any of them because I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a, a sprinkling of this and, you know, a mixture of all these different things. So when I read through all the, you know, who am I supposed to be when I grow up? And then I read through all the lines. I'm like, can I just get like a mixture of all of them? And I feel like, you know, my my children's generation, nobody judges my 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 son because he dresses in a girl's school uniform and, you know, he's got long hair now and he's a very he's a very pretty uh, fella and I think that you know when people see him they don't know who, you know so they just automatically make assumptions that like oh he's just one of the girls and he's really happy about that but at the same time you know when I talk to him about like do you want to be a girl and he's like well I, I, I like me and I'm like that's how I feel you know I don't I don't people say like oh no but you have to fit into LGBTQ plus you have to fit into one of these and I'm like but I don't fit into any of them because I I, I have a wife and I have four children. I don't want to wear a pretty dress, but I don't want to dress like a boy either. I feel like a man and I like my body and I like that I am in a just male body. But yet 
my emotions are feminine and I feel connected to women and my only, all my friends are women and I feel more drawn to feminine emotions, you know? So it's very complicated, but I think most of us are kind of afraid to say a lot of those things out loud because we don't want to get fired from our jobs and we don't want to lose our friends and we don't want to be alienated from the tribe that we're pretending to fit into, you know? And I think because of the um, career I accidentally <laughs> formed for myself, everyone's got an opinion about me anyway. So I have no job to be fired from and I have no friends to lose. So I'm like, you know what? I will be tribute. I will stand up on the stage and tell you the things that you may be afraid to admit yourself. I'm a big fan of Mae Martin. She, They are a Canadian-born comedian, actor and writer uh, behind Feel Good, which is a, a brilliant series on Netflix. And they often get asked about being non-binary. And I heard them say, I don't want that label. If I don't feel like mm. a boy and I don't feel like a girl, I don't have to take this label. And I think we're obsessed exactly. with classifying everything. And mm. that really reframed things for me but I suppose we're at a different era aren't we where so much is shared on social media and we're exposed to so many different schools of thought and as you say in the 80s that just wasn't there so when it came mm. to your parents they were really at odds at, at, at what to do and, and how to help you they fought a lot um, and eventually you went to a a school for emotionally challenged was how it was described from from your parents point of view what sort of a child were you what would day-to-day -day be like I was probably the most difficult child you could think of you know and that's why like like I say you know with 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 the eyes of a parent and maturity look I am my parents child they will always love me there's nothing I can ever do to not to you know if you, once you're a parent you realize that there's nothing my children can do to ever make me stop loving them but my children will have a perspective of life that I'm unaware of because all we can do as parents is try to be the best that we know how to be but that doesn't mean that we know what's best for our children and I know that sounds so crazy because you're thinking but I do know what's best for my children and I talk in the book about the satnav that my parents mapped for me you know because they felt that Jonathan needs to you know go this route and he needs to hit all of these markers and he needs to end up in this destination and for me I, I, I understood the destination, but I felt like the route was wrong because for me to get to the destination that they wanted me to go, I needed to go a different route. And, and, I, and I could feel my mother's frustration knowing I was being bullied in school and knowing I was finding, you know, um, life in general very difficult. And I had expressed to her that I really didn't want to live anymore. And she got really worried about me. And I think she just thought, if you could just fit in. You know, and I talk about it in the book where she says to me, like, just be like the other boys and you won't be a target anymore. And I understand that I can see why that is the solution in 1980, where, you know, before the Internet came along, you know, I, I grew up in Terranier and on my road was the whole world. The World Wide Web was my road. There was no social media. We had television was three television channels. I had no influence from anything. And I felt so. I must be the only person in the world who feels how I feel. And that makes me very lonely and makes me very sad and makes me not want to be in this world anymore. You know, and I'm just really thankful that, you know, whatever it was that my imagination came along and introduced me to Giselle and Abigail and, 
you know, and they came and they, they, they saved me and introduced me to this world. And it just gave me a respite. It gave me a chance to take a break and consider what I was thinking and consider how I felt. Well, you're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna, and I'm talking to Jonathan Jolly about his book, a memoir, All My Friends Are Invisible. We take a break and when we come back, we look at those societal structures and why they are so rigid and why we're all setting our sat-nav in one direction only. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. And I'm talking to Jonathan Jolly about his book, All My Friends Are Invisible. Jonathan, why did you want to tell the story? Why did this come up in your life? In the first chapter of the book, you talk about a panic attack where your memories of this world you created in your imagination with your imaginary friends that was respite from the world you didn't fit in with. And it all came rushing in. And at that stage, you were... You were married with two kids. Why do you think it came back then? And then what spurred you on to, to write the book? So, you know, I uh, my trauma as a child is not physical, you know, although like, you know, school was pretty brutal. You know what I mean? I didn't leave my childhood without scars, but it was emotional trauma. And emotional trauma has a way of manifesting inside of you that you're unaware of. And the last chapter in the book, which is called Closing the Box, which is metaphorically me putting away all my coping mechanisms that I had. And I found a way to create a projection of a version of myself that I figured the world would find easier to understand. If I could just be Jonathan like everybody else, then every, then the world would look at me more favorably and they would accept me. And it's, it's like a good or a bad thing. It worked phenomenally well for me. And, it, you know... Um, it was quite destructive when I was learning how to become different people and becoming a chameleon of society because I wanted to fit in. Don't we all want to fit in? Don't we all want to be part of a tribe? But when you find that you're not part of the tribe, the best thing to do is just to fake it, you know, and that's what I did. And, you know, and, and you know, one of the personality projections that I tried, which I started in, when I was 31, was I thought, hey, you know what? Maybe if I be this guy, people will like me more. And that guy that I became started to join YouTube and then became this like incredibly large uh, global personality. Um, and that was kind of my undoing because the pressure, the pressure I felt that I had to be a better version of a version that I was faking to be of myself, that people would only like me if I was this version of myself. So I need to continue to be this version of myself. And then on one side, you had people on the internet trying to like tear me apart you know, because it became a sport to just destroy a person. And on the other side, you had people who loved me and tried to lift me up. And then there was the pressure of this, this business, you know, the, um, the entertainment media business is very intense and very brutal. And they don't really consider people's feelings. Um, and I was just in the middle of all of this. And then I'm sitting at an airport 2016 and boom, uh, just that was it. I, I couldn't do it anymore. The pressure cooker just exploded. You know, and it took it took a few years. You know, I did a lot of therapy. I did a lot of self healing. I, you know, I tried I tried to figure out what was going on, and and then it, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of misunderstanding and misdiagnosing and trying to figure it all out. Up until I'm sitting there with my child Eduardo, and I I, I fix him, and then I I go to fix him, and then it turns out he just this this mirror I'm talking to. He shows I look in this mirror, and then I see 
little Jonathan looking back at him and I'm like, oh crap, what have I done? You know, I've accidentally spent a lifetime not being myself, being a projection to make everybody else like me. But I don't like the person I've become. And then I just decided I would, instead of just quietly telling my close friends and family this, I said, you know what? I'm just going to tell the world what I've done. And that way I can never, ever go back to being the projection again. I've destroyed it so much now that I um, I have nowhere to hide. So this is me. I've noticed a question that's come up for you time and time again since you have been on social media. I mean, would you believe way back when in my first radio show, uh, we had yourself on because yourself and Anna had just given birth on YouTube and everyone's always saying, is this the right thing? Are you doing the right thing? Why are you sharing your children? And I know you're coming up with that again now about your son wanting to wear girls in inverted commas clothes and your daughter and her depression and anxiety. But people will have their own views about whether or not they want to share their own children on social media and everyone has to do what they're comfortable with. But surely why should we hide it? Why should it be something that later in life your son is going to regret or your daughter is going to regret? You're just putting them out there and saying, this is me. Well, you know, um, you, you know, if you've read the book, that's what I grew up with. And my parents never put me on YouTube or social media. And, and look what I went through. Maybe if they did, maybe I wouldn't have felt so alone. You know, maybe if my parents championed me like the way I might do with Eduardo. You know, and I don't, I don't know if we're doing the right thing. You know, I don't know. I, I, parenting is, it's complex and complicated and your children might hate you because you gave them oranges every day for lunch and they resented you for that and kept that inside for a long time. And then suddenly when they're 27 one day and we're all drunk together, they go and tell you and you're like, what? You know, you don't know what it is, but we have, um, we've been very honest and open. We, you know, as much as we filmed that show, Secondi Jolies, for 12 years, you know, we haven't done it in over a year now. Um, and, you know, during that time, people would only see the outwardly um, show that we were putting out there. But, you know, in our own family, we talked very openly, you know, and we always knew what was going on. And, you know, we, we came up against a lot of stresses and a lot of problems. And myself and Anna, we have this way of just we always just didn't really focus on the negative stuff. You know, we didn't share some of the negative things, you know, but. It, you know, I would say that the the most damaging aspect of, uh, you know, the children and the Internet was people's need to interfere with us, you know, more so than what we were doing, you know. And that's, you know, when I when I started, you know, when I saw on TikTok and I was like and Eduardo had, you know, it was just one random video where he had expressed it and everyone got really angry because Eduardo was wearing um, a dress. And then the, the narrative turned that I was forcing him and that this, you know, it was just straight to this. It couldn't possibly be a seven-year-old expressing how he felt. And I decided, I was like, well, I think we need to educate people, you know? And, and then it just sort of came into a thing where I was like, no, don't, don't hide away who you are, you know? And at the same time, he was dealing with, um, you know, some young boys in school, which, you know, didn't really like what he was doing either, you know? And it just kind of, it's all like it was like one of those things where like I could not tell 
the story of all my friends are invisible and I could pretend that I didn't have to hide my sister's clothes under my room and then the guardie caught me that time and they took my bag off me and you know that's that scared me so much that I never did it again because I was so terrified of being caught by society and being pinned against the wall and everyone mocking me you know but is that is that the right thing like well yes technically they fixed Jonathan and he went off and you know he he lived the grand life but on the inside he was dead you know so I feel like we should talk about these things. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And can we talk about some of the possible solutions or lessons to be learned? Um, As you said, everyone's mental health is complex. Everyone's lives are different. Everyone's journey is going to be different. But we've talked about the societal norms and the structures and they're so rigid. I mean, you as a boy were expected to not be as emotional as you were to wear particular clothes, to go to an all boys school, even though you preferred the company of girls and felt more comfortable with that. And it does come through in the book that, you know, there were times where your, your, your mom in, in particular did sit and listen and hear and be flexible and try and and learn along with you in the confines of the 80s. And you did go to a special school. And I often wonder about the school setup we have. I mean, it's for a very specific type of student, isn't it? An academic Mm -hmm. student who does well and fits in. Now, Thankfully, I think that's changing. My own kids go to educate together. It celebrates inclusion and difference and and, and all of that. That's part of the curriculum. So I I do think we're changing. But, you know, we still have a bit of a way to go, don't we? Mm, Definitely. You know, because not every child, you know, wants the same thing. You know, like we had a bit of a battle here, you know, initially with Eduardo, you know, because he wanted to express himself differently. And it is a rigid system where they expect you to, you know, do certain things like even forgetting identity. I don't have a leaving cert. I don't have a leaving cert because I crashed out of the system because it wasn't designed for me. You know, ADHD, dyslexia, you know, like I had so many learning difficulties. I was torn with my identity. I was struggling with mental health. When I was in secondary school, I used to work in a nightclub um, and I used to save the money up. And then every Wednesday I would mitch off school and I, I I was going to therapy and I was paying to go to counseling because I knew I was broken and I knew there was no one could fix me. And I, and I just, I, I, something about, I knew the answer was not to leave. I needed to fix the problem. I figured if I left, nothing would ever be done and other people would just, you know, repeat the same cycle. And that pressure was put onto me by based on a system that said to me, you're no good at anything. You know, my, uh, you know, in, in fifth year, that's as far as I got in fifth year, you know, I remember sitting down about the CAO forms and, you know, they were just telling me that like, oh, well, maybe um, a building site or, you know, like, I don't know, like maybe McDonald's, like there's no hope for you, you know, and cut to, you know, nearly 10 years later, I'm in a university in Bournemouth and I'm told I'm a bloody genius, <laughs> you know, because the way my mind thinks, how how my brain works, and you know what I mean? My, my frequency of learning is different. So when I was a child, I was punished for my mind. And with my children now, you know, when my kids say, oh, I, I, you know, I failed maths or I'm crap at maths, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but Amelia, you are incredibly gifted at storytelling. Like, look at your imagination. I'm like, that's the future. You know, don't worry about the rigid system. 
Yeah. And even, you know, in the book, the flip from you struggling to fit in and, and being seriously bullied, not only by fellow students, but also by some of the teachers, mm. that when you went to a smaller setup of a school, all of a sudden you were able to, to make friends because your needs were being met more. And I, mm. I just think we need to be open to discussing these things a little bit and have a bit more flexibility around our societal norms, our, it's our hard, conditioning. And it's, it's, it's yeah, hard because to have because, a society there, mm. I mean, we can't all just be be running free, I suppose, but we can be flexible and have these conversations. Yeah, like I think in our family home here, the way I would see, um, you know, gender, for example, I just think it's stupid. You know, I'm like, you know, there's biology and people argue that and people were getting angry at me on Twitter when they said that they're like, oh, well, your chromosomes say you're this and say you're that. And I'm like, yeah, but your chromosomes don't mean anything. How do we even know? You know, think about what we know today in 2022. Could you imagine 2032 what we'll know about humans? You know, we we don't even we how much of our brain do we actually even use? Like it's such a small part. So I feel like people should just be people, you know, like when I buy clothes, you know, I, I choose to dress androgynous because I don't I don't want to wear pretty dresses and I don't want to be a girl, but I don't want to be a boy either. So it is a bit difficult when buying clothes. And I find that I go to Etsy a lot of the time to buy clothes that are more, you know what I mean? Not mainstream, more niche to what I want, you know, and I would love if I could just go to, you know, a, a, a popular brand and just be able to just buy clothes, make it easier. But then you have to like maybe go to a girl's one and then people say, oh, you're a cross dresser. And I'm like, that's so offensive because of course I'm not a cross dresser. I'm just, I'm dressed. Are, are you wearing clothes? Cause I'm wearing clothes too. So what's the difference? You know, I just, the whole, the whole system was designed for a hundred years ago, not for today. Yeah. Well, look, Jonathan, for somebody who people thought would not amount to much, you have the most beautiful family. You have a very successful career and now you are a published author. Thank you for having this conversation on the program today and for writing the book. It is called All My Friends Are Invisible. Jonathan Jolly, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, to Garrett Mohall and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week.